Hey, if this is your uh, first time with us, we are in the Gospel of John. We have been in the Gospel of John the whole year as we have been journeying through this Gospel, uh, beginning at the very beginning of the year and hopefully ending before the end of the year. Uh, we have been going through not quite verse by verse, but section by section in the Gospel of John. And um, as we saw last week, as we entered into John chapter 13, uh, this Gospel kind of slows down. We saw um, uh, up until this point, everything um, happened over the course of three years. Now this gospel slows down, and almost uh, from this point forward, we see one night uh, between Jesus and his disciples as he's sitting down with them and teaching them and, um, and revealing to them uh, the significance of the cross uh, for their lives. And so for us as a church, I think uh, as we enter into this section, it's going to feel kind of like we're slowing down. Uh, with this one night with Jesus as we study this scripture. Um, But oh, how important it is for us to slow down and hear what Jesus has to say. I want to challenge you. At the very beginning of this series, I challenge you to read read through the entire gospel of John in one sitting. Uh, No one has yet come to me and said, I did it. (laughs) Uh, And so the challenge remains, please... uh, Please make an attempt to do that. If, if you find that you are unable, um, you can go to something like Bible Gateway or Version app on your phone, and you can listen to someone read the Bible to you in one sitting. Um, but I find it beneficial to, to read it yourself in one sitting, and then also to keep up with the section that we're in each week as we are just progressing through the gospel, to, be, to allow yourself uh, to read it and to ask questions, um, because there's so much there uh, for us. As we get to this section where it's teaching about, um, about love, I, I, it's hard to stand here um, this morning and, uh, and ignore the events um, that have happened in Charlottesville and in our society and the division that it seems to be uh, multiplying uh, in our society. Um, and division that seems to be growing greater and larger and stronger and forming um, extreme camps on the ends of our division. Uh, and can't help but to think about the role of media, social media, news media, uh, and conversations and the way uh, things are brought from the streets and from neighborhoods both near and far, and they're brought into our living room and, um, and become the source of fear uh, and anxiety and concern and uh, division into camps uh, and to sides and, and all that that is doing in our society. Um, I think it's important for us as a church uh, not to tune that out, um, to be sure and stand against um, hatred and evil and violence uh, every time it rears its ugly head, but then also um, to be mindful of what it looks like to stand as a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, because here's, here's, what, um, here's what I see happening um, As divisions multiply, 
And as they happen in our society, uh, in our own homes and families, um, and as camps begin to form, and we find ourselves as a result of some of our history and background, our own personal story and narrative on one side or the other, and the other all too often becomes the enemy. And just as in war, um, if you are battling in war, um, to some degree your heart must grow hard to the enemy because it requires you to do some things that with a softened heart you just wouldn't be able to do. And we as a church must be careful that hard hearts do not become commonplace in the church. And that we don't become people who speak without compassion, who champion a side without hearing the other, and who return hate for hate, harm for harm, um, because our hearts have become hardened because we stand on a side and we fail to hear what Jesus says to us this morning. Love one another as I have loved you. Let's pray and then we'll get into our message for this morning. God, we give you thanks this morning that you've given us this opportunity to open the scriptures and to read them. God, I thank you that as we read them, they do come alive by your spirit. And God, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see in the Gospel of John where you reveal to us that you're going to send your spirit to be with us and to guide us into truth. And it's not just so that we can know what right looks like but so that we can walk in it. God, your will is for us to walk in holiness. And so as we read the scriptures, as we study them, God, I pray that they'll come alive for us, not just so that we can marvel at what was written thousands of years ago, but so that our lives might be transformed. And as we leave from places like this, having read the scriptures, we'll live different lives that will be genuine lights in the world and will point to our great God and creator. Our great God and creator and sustainer and redeemer. The one who has claimed us as his own to live as he lived. God, we do give you thanks. It's in your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning, as I said, we're kind of slowing down to this moment between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Jesus is in the upper room. He's in the room, uh, and I don't know that anybody ever knows, anybody figured out where exactly the upper room was or what its location was, but he was in the upper room with the disciples. This is what the other gospel writers record uh, where Jesus uh, had uh, the Passover, shared the Passover meal with the disciples, what we come to call the Lord's Supper or communion. Now, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, if you remember, he called 12 disciples, and he called them, and I don't know what the conversation looked like or sounded like. The Bible is incomplete in that sense, right? The Bible doesn't set out to tell us every word Jesus said, and so we don't know the full conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. We only know what the Bible tells us, 
but he called them to follow him and to make disciples, to go and make disciples. And, and I don't know, uh, again, I don't know the full conversation, but these guys, they dropped what they were doing. They left all kinds of things behind, and they followed Jesus. Whatever Jesus said to them, they understood the call of Jesus Christ in their life to be a call to a full-time vocation, to work that God had for them to do, that they had to leave everything behind, even their occupation, their careers, their jobs in order to find, follow Jesus. And if you look back in Matthew, and we're going to get to John, but if you look in Matthew where we have the call of the disciples in Matthew chapter, um, chapter 4, if you look there in verse 18, listen to what it says. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. They were fishermen. They had a career. They were settled in it. They were satisfied in it. They were making a living doing that. And Jesus said to them, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a stranger guy, right? A stranger coming up to you saying, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They were settled as fishermen. They were making a living doing that. They had a career. Jesus says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Um, if this would have been me, the next line would have been like, what you talking about, Willis? Um, <laughs> but disciples don't, they don't, I couldn't, I couldn't resist that one. Um, disciples don't go there. It says immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boats. And their father, <laughs> and they followed him. Now, I don't know the whole conversation that Jesus must have had with his disciples, but whatever it was, they understood that Jesus was calling them to leave behind their careers, leave behind the life they had built for themselves, leave behind the life that they were settled in, and to follow him. And what we see about discipleship is this, right? Discipleship at the very minimum means having your life reoriented, radically reoriented by the teachings of Jesus Christ. When Jesus called people, there was no way that they could follow him and their lives looked the same. Whenever anyone followed Jesus, it was a full-time, um, almost said full-time gig, but a gig is something you usually get paid for, right? There was no money involved, right? It was this full-time vocation, this calling from the Lord where Jesus was calling them to leave some stuff behind, to follow him, and to become full-time disciples. And what we begin to see Right? As, we, as we look at the teachings of Jesus and as we even uh, take them and apply them to our own lives in our own setting, um, is that the, the teachings of Jesus are so comprehensive right, that they have such application in the everyday situations that we find ourselves in that, that, um, that when we become disciples of Jesus today, though the call to be disciples might not mean a change of career for you. It might, right? There's some careers that got to change if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus. You know what I mean? Uh, Y'all know what I mean. There's some careers that got to change if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus. But while it might not mean a change of career, 
It does mean that every moment of every day gains new meaning and significance in our lives. Because if we're going to listen and and apply the teachings of Jesus, right, if we're going to follow what Jesus taught his disciples to do, I mean, if you just flip to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus begins running down this whole list of things, you could even just, if you just so happen to pop in to verse 38, which will be on the slides, right, if you just so happen to pop in there and you you, you read what Jesus is teaching and his kind of uh, inaugural message, if you will. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? That, um, we, we, don't, we don't quite do that, right? We don't, we, that was not quite the way we roll in our society. We don't pluck out eyes, typically. We don't pluck out teeth, um, typically. We don't, but, but, um, but we do have this mindset where you do to me, I'm, I'm going give, to give you back exactly what you give to me, right? We, 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 um, we treat people as their actions deserve in our society. And he, but Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. The teachings of Jesus Christ that he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, they're so radical that if we're going to follow, uh, follow Jesus, if we're going to become his disciples, it means this radical reorientation of our life where every moment of every day becomes holy because in every moment of every day we can live for the Lord. And, and the disciples um, kind of leave us with this discipleship paradigm, and we're left in modern times trying to figure out what that looks like for us, right, where we don't have Jesus coming to us while we're standing on the side of, of the lake fishing, saying, hey, come follow me, I'll be fishers of men. We don't understand the call of Jesus to be saying, hey, leave your job right now. But, but what we do see, though, that, that is um, true for us today is that our hearts must be so softened that if the Lord Almighty, the creator of the universe, said to us, leave the career that you're in, I have better work for you to do, more significant kingdom work that you were created to do from the foundations of the world, we won't go, well, Jesus, how am I going to make a living? (laughs) Right? We're going to say, yes, first, and I'll trust you with the details. And that's that's what the disciples did, right? It was a yes, first, I'm going to trust you with the details. Now, I uh, I, I have no question in my mind, um, I'm not a betting man, but if I were a betting man, uh, I have no question in my mind, I put my money on the fact that the disciples sat down with Jesus and said, how's all this going to work out, right? That night, they were like, hey, uh, yeah, we we gave you our best yes. We left what what we had behind, but how is all this going to work out? And what seemed to not, what seemed impossible was impossible. And God provided for all of their needs. And they started a movement in Tri-Cities Church is here today because of their best yes that they gave God, not knowing all the details and how this would work out. Whenever I read this story, I, I sit, we're getting, we're getting, this is like last week, we're getting to John, we are. Um, whenever I read this story, and, and, and um, 
Yeah, I mean, just when I read the, the Bible and the story of the, the early church, um, I, I guess I, I wonder what legacy are we leaving? It, and, and what will people thousands of, of years down the road like, in what way will people thousands of the years down the road benefit from, from our faith, right? Because um, uh, Matthew, Peter, uh, uh, whatever the other disciples say, James, John, and the rest of them, they, they didn't, like, when Jesus said, come follow me, they weren't going, there's going to be a church called Tri-Cities Church, and they're one day going to hear my story. And they're going to be encouraged to walk. They weren't, like, that, that wasn't the narrative that was rolling in their heads. Um, but we have their story. And so we know that it is true that both this generation and the one to come will benefit by the way we live out our faith, by the way we take seriously the call of Jesus Christ. Now, getting into John, we have the story of Judas, right? So John opens this week in, in verse 21, John chapter 13, this story of Judas. Judas was a disciple of Jesus. He left all to follow Jesus. He left stuff behind in order to follow Jesus. He traveled with the disciples. He lived with the disciples. They were on tour together. They were on the road together. They struggled together. They went through hardship together. In Luke chapter 9, the, uh, Jesus sends them out together. They come back with reports of all that God uh, had done through them as they traveled throughout the countryside and did effective ministry. Judas was a disciple of Jesus, by all appearances, he appears to be this guy that was um, uh, gung-ho up until this point yeah, up until this point for following Jesus. In fact, when we get into John chapter 13, um, <laughs> what, what we see is that Jesus basically reveals um, that Judas is going to be a traitor. <laughs> and and it, it, I think this points a little bit to how much the disciples believed in Judas and Judas. Uh, how hard he worked for the Lord, that, that when Jesus reveals this to them, they're, they're kind of going, no. Like, they, it's almost like they're believing Judas over Jesus. Like, I mean, let's just go back to that. John chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going we're to get up a little bit further than that, but uh, not verse 1, verse 21. Uh, John chapter 13, it says, When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. At that moment, everybody's looking around going, who is it? Right? I mean, everybody's mind is searching for the one that will betray Jesus. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know, which, uh, know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who is it, who it is of whom he is speaking. He leaning back on Jesus' bosom and said to him, Lord, who is it? Um, and Jesus answered, that is the one whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, this is, this is bread, this is, this is kind of hard language. I, I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version of the Bible, which is a little bit more wooden and uh, a little bit more rigid than the NIV. 
which we were using last year, um, which we'll be back to next year. Um, <clears throat> he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After Judas, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, um, what you do, do quickly. So they're sitting there, they're reclining probably on the ground, not at a table like we have in our homes, because those probably weren't commonplace, in, in, especially not in the place where they were. They probably had mats, they had spread out, and they're reclining on the ground, and they're eating, and they're sharing this meal, and Jesus takes this morsel, and he dips it, a morsel, a piece of bread probably, and dips it, and Judas dips it in at the same time, and Jesus is like, that's, that's the one. That's how this story is playing out. Um, now, no one of those reclining at the table knew what purpose he had said this. For some were supposing Judas had the money box and that, Judas, and that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for the feast or else that he would give something to the poor. So after having received the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. And so here we have Jesus reveals that Judas is the betrayer. Jesus is like, it's that guy. Y'all wanted to know who it is. It's that guy right there. I'm telling you who it is. And then he gets up and they're going, he's going to give to the poor. That Judas, man, always having a heart for the Lord. It, uh, Judas, um, yeah, I mean, oh man, like Judas, like no one would have ever suspected Judas because he had walked with the Lord. He had done effective ministry with the Lord. And what we begin to see in this verse and in the entire New Testament is how sin can creep into our lives and disrupt what God is doing there. It can disrupt the work that God is doing. And, and, I, and I read the story of Judas and I'm like, how could you betray the creator of the universe who became flesh like how could you do that but then I'm reminded that the very same thing could happen so easily in my life if I entertain emotions and desires and thoughts that don't line up with the holiness of God our creator if I'm not constantly making war against the flesh if I'm not battling things that aren't like my God and Savior Jesus Christ if I allow those things to dwell within me sin can creep in and disrupt what God is doing in our lives and so I look at Judas and I go man how easy I could become like like Judas and and what um, what's hiding in my heart that I feel like I can hide there that no one will know about it can remain there as a secret. And I can just privately entertain those thoughts, those desires, those wishes, those thoughts. What am I not offering up to Jesus as my Savior and saying, Kill this. Take this thought away from me. Take this desire away from me. And, and man, and in and, and, and kind of the vein of, of Paul the Apostle, what desire have I offered up to the Lord? And, and he didn't take it away from me, and I've now just given in to it. And the challenge of 
this scripture and the challenge of Paul's life is that even when we are bound to live with desires and thoughts that don't line up with the way and the will of God, that we must rely even more fervently on the strength that only the Lord can give. Because if you remember to the Apostle Paul when he said, take this thorn in my flesh away, right? Take this hardship, this thing that has come to make my life harder, make following Jesus more difficult. When, when he says, Lord, take this thing away from me, what what, is, what does God say to him, right? My strength is made perfect in your weakness. That will remain. That desire may remain. That thought may remain. Uh, the, the, um, the things in our lives, uh, internal things that are resting in our heart that don't line up with the Lord may still remain as temptations for us. And will ultimately overcome us if we're not living and walking in the strength of God Almighty. If we aren't daily waking up and saying, Lord, only by your strength can I live into the righteousness that you've clothed me with when you died on the cross. Because here's the reality, right? When Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins. We've been covered in his righteousness. When he sees us, he doesn't see us as sinners. He doesn't see us as filthy. He doesn't see us as worthless. He sees us as people who have been covered by his righteousness, able to stand confidently before him as Lord Almighty. But he's at the same time not saying, I've covered you with my righteousness so you can remain in your filth. Right? He's saying, I've covered you with my righteousness so that you can learn to walk walk into it without fear of my wrath and judgment. That's the grace of God Almighty, right? He covers us with his righteousness so we can walk into his righteousness. And so every day we say, Lord, my flesh is weak. And only by your strength am I able to walk into the life that you've created me for. And we find that we become to look more like the Lord. The Bible doesn't give us all the details about Judas's life, but I think the thing we can say is that he didn't take seriously the work of sanctification, walking into the way of the Lord seriously, the way Jesus had called him into. And when he didn't, he allowed some things to rest in his heart and to remain there. And ultimately, they tugged him away from the way of the Lord, and he no longer followed Jesus. Now, after that, Jesus reveals this. Um, he, he knows that the disciples are going to have a hard time following him. He knows that they are not going to have his physical presence with them much longer. And so he, he, he knows that there's going to be a struggle because up until this point, the disciples, um, well, well, one, they had Jesus there, right? It's kind of hard. It's like almost like, um, um, it's almost like a kid doing the wrong thing while their parent's watching, right? Um, a lot of times they wait till they think you've turned your back and they can't figure out how you have eyes in the back of your head um, or how you at least claim you do. Um, uh, but uh, it, it's almost like that. 
Uh, so on one hand, the disciples are walking with the Lord, and so it's a little bit challenging to do the wrong thing. Um, but he knows he, that they're no longer going to have his presence with him after he goes to the cross, after he's resurrected and goes back to heaven where he was before. And so he begins to explain some things to them about uh, what it looks like because they could no longer say, hey, Jesus, what should I do in this situation? Wouldn't that be nice? Have you ever been in a situation where you wish you could say, hey, Jesus, what? And, and like the voice of God would just tell you, what you are to do. Um, that, well, that, Jesus knew that that was going to be less common than we would desire. Um, and so he gives them this new commandment. In John uh, chapter 13, um, verse 34, he says, A new command I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is a powerful verse if we let it sink in for a moment, Um, because when we get to this verse, one of the things that you must ask the question of, what does he mean, a new command I give you that you love? The Bible teaches us to love in the Old Testament, and it's not much new about a commandment to love. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 19, um, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance, not, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus repeats this, right, in the Gospel of Matthew. He repeats this very same scripture. He quotes from this. And so the people already had this command to love one another. And Jesus goes, a new commandment I give you. Now, if y'all remember last week, one of the things we said was here in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, in all those chapters, what Jesus is doing is he's unpacking the significance of the cross. Um, and so what he's doing is, is he's, before he ever goes to the cross, he, he's sitting down with his disciples and having this um, kind of slow, intimate conversation with them uh, and, and really driving some points in for them to see and understand and comprehend. And so there's even some repetition going on here because in verse, um, so John chapter 13, verse 34 that I just read, a new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I've loved you. Look at what he says in in, in chapter 15. Uh, If you flip over to chapter 15, verse 12, so like one page, at least in my Bible, it was one page. Um, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And so here he is, kind of the, the, the speed of things is slowing down, right? He's sitting down with his disciples. He's repeating the same thing, and, and he's going. And then he goes in, in verse 13 in chapter 15. He says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And so what he's saying to them here in chapter 13 and again in chapter 15 on the evening before the cross, right? He's going, this is what the cross means, right? I've commanded you to love in the past, right? That's nothing new to you. But here's the difference. There's this new standard from the, of love that I'm calling my disciples to move into, right, to walk into. There's a new standard of love that looks different than the love in the past. It looks different than that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of love, right, because sometimes that just doesn't feel like love. And Jesus is going, there's a new standard of love, and I'm, I'm calling you to, to walk and to live in it um, because the end of my time here with you is near. And this is what you can rely on as a way of faithfully following me when you can no longer follow my physical presence. 
And so a new command I give you, verse 34, that you love one another, and then he clarifies it, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus is saying you're getting ready to see the ultimate expression of love on the cross. You're going to witness it with your eyes is what he's saying to the disciples. And when you see it. Now, Jesus didn't actually say this. I'm not quoting from him, but this is what I imagine was going on in his head. Your knees will tremble. And your heart will begin to beat rapidly because you will realize how much what God is calling you to do is going to require and cost you. Because before the cross, when Jesus says, hey, uh, love other people as I've loved you, and you're going, well, Jesus heals some people, right? He gave me that power. I'll do that all day long, right? Jesus multiplied some bread and some fish. He gave me that power all day, like all day. I'll stand outside the market. Like people will come out with groceries. I'll just multiply them and give them out to people, right? The people won't even have to come into grocery store anymore. Like Kroger, I just stand out there one person, right? We just keep multiplying all day. Like that kind of love, we can roll with that all day long, right? That's no problem. And so the disciples are going, all right, bring it on. Bring it home. Like, you, you're going to let me do that? Let's multiply some stuff. Let's heal some people. Let's travel and perform all these signs and wonders. But Jesus says, even as I've loved you on the night before the cross, he's saying what you're getting ready to see is going to cause your knees to tremble, your heart to begin beating rapidly because you realize what God is requiring of you. It's going to cost you everything. A new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, Jesus wants the community. He intends for the church to be a community that is known for its unconditional and limitless love. That is, that we're not loving just or only those who love us, and we're not loving people who we like or people who we can tolerate, but he's calling us to have this unconditional love, this love that doesn't have to be earned, that isn't deserved, this love uh, for some that we just can't stand to love, this love that can't be an emotion because it just won't work that way. It has to be an intentional decision to follow Jesus Christ because we don't have those kinds of feelings for some people. Uh, So he's not calling us to that kind of love. He's calling us to make a decision out of the faith in our hearts to love those who are easy to love and those who are terribly difficult to love. And he says this, that this is the only way that the world is going to know that you are my disciples. Jesus has in mind that the church would look clearly different than the world 
around it. Jesus has in mind this image of this church that is going to handle situations differently than the world around it. In fact, our nation right now is dividing and fighting, and there's all these uh, tensions um, that are happening as we begin to see them multiply, both racially, politically, everyly, like everyly, is that thing? Everyly, like it just seems like things are just getting um, very divisive, and, 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 and people are fighting, and, I, and, and it's important for the church to realize this, right, that the pathway, right, the pathway to peace, prosperity, unity, and to the sign of hope in our world is not paved by expressions of um, a violent power, but by love, right? That Jesus is calling us not to lift our voices louder, to let our point be heard as much as he's calling us to love, right? He's not calling us to go out and to stand on roadsides and make a lot of noise before. And first and foremost, he's calling us to love. And if we are driven by, um, yeah, if we're, if we're driven by, um, if we're driven by, if, if we're driven by emotions, like, like fear and anxiety, that those emotions are going to drive us outside of the will of the Lord. The scriptures say for a reason that God does not give us a spirit of fear. That fear in the Christian life has no role in the driver's seat because it would drive us into actions that are out of line with the will of the Lord. The scriptures say for a reason, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because, because the Lord Almighty, the one who create, created us, knows that if anxiety is in the driver's seat, it's not going to lead us to love. You see, the place that our society is in right now is causing all kinds of emotions, fear, anxiety, worry, concern. And it makes us want to move into action first and foremost without stopping and considering what it looks like for me right now at this moment to uh, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Here's the thing, because Jesus is talking to the church and he believes very firmly that the church must look different than the society around it. The thing that we as a church have to decide in our hearts that this is the way it's going to be is that the division and the disunity and the chaos and tension that's happening in the society around us is not going to be mirrored in the church, right? That we're not going to allow that to drive us from being together as a church, as a church that loves one another out of faithfulness to Jesus Christ, not loves one another because they're on our side or in our camp or agree with the world the way that we see it or agree with things politically the way we stand, but we're going to love one another because we are the church and that the divisions in our society are not going to mirror or reflect themselves in this place. The emotions that were in the driver's seat for Judas 
might be different than the emotions that are trying to jump in our driver's seat right now. But they will have the same effect. They will drive us away from the will of the Lord and will have eternal consequences. I think the challenge of this scripture for us is, um, <laughs> I just had this mental image, right? Uh, it's of like, strap, it, strap your seatbelt on, right? Uh, um, uh, make war against any emotion or desire that wants to get in the driver's seat of your life. Because we cannot become the church that looks no different than the society. We're looking for hope. Our society is, is looking for hope. The church is the hope of the world. We must become fully convinced of that. If not, we become like foolish men and women. We become like people who have lived in generations past. who turned and relied on their own strength, strategy, and ingenuity to fix the problems of this world when there's a creator, a savior, who is the answer. And the church must be committed to showing something different to the world. In fact, God's mission through Tri-Cities Church is only progressed when we, when we reject that voice within us, right, that says that we have no uh, right being together. When we reject that voice within us that, that's telling us to divide, when we reject that voice within us that says that says there's an easier way. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, in, um, he was tempted by Satan. Y'all remember that story? If you were to summarize Satan's temptations, all right, he says, there's a better way an easier way. It's not God's way, but there's an easier way. At the, at the end of Jesus' ministry, before the cross, and he prays, take this cup from me. Right? Ultimately, he's praying, I wish there was an easier way. I have bad news for you. There is an easier way, but it's not God's way.
God's way is for the church to be unified, standing together, not looking like our society around us, not allowing the division and the fighting that's happening there to mirror itself in the church, not allowing the hate that's there to mirror itself in the church and reflect itself here, but making up in our minds and in our hearts that we are going to do and be something different. That we're going to live into this new command that Jesus gave, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Relentlessly, not giving up when it's hard. The song we sang before I came up um, talked about God's love for us. And maybe you're here today and, and you've never, I mean, maybe you've never heard that there's a God who loves you deeply, even poetically as that song um, is written. That a God who loves you in ways that are beyond human language has the ability to describe. And that God loves you not because of something that you've given or something that you have to offer him or because of some intrinsic value that you have or some right that you've done, but he loves you just the way that you are. Scriptures talk about the power of this God's love, that it came to earth sacrificing everything, that it gave up heaven, that it gave up perfection, that it gave up all needs being met, paradise with no temptation, struggle, or hardship. That that God gave up the place that our hearts long for because that God longed for our hearts. He wanted to draw us close to him. He wanted us to know the depth of his love. He wanted us to feel his heartbeat. And he would let nothing stop that from becoming a reality. And maybe this is your first time hearing about that kind of love. And I want to challenge you this morning that if you are just hearing about that kind of love and you're going, maybe you're going, oh, no, nah, no way. Nah, I'm not sure I buy it. Let's, let's talk about that, right? Because I can show you that there's a God that loves you more than you could ever imagine. It has a plan and purpose for your life. Or maybe you're going, hey, I've, I've wanted to know about that God, and I just didn't know how. Let's begin the conversation this morning. Let's start that conversation and walk into what it means for there to be a God who loves you just the way you are, but loves you way too much to leave you where you are like you are. Who wants his best for you 
from now and into eternity. There's a God that loves all of us that much. And he wants us to know him. And the way we know him is by receiving that love and then walking into it. Loving others in the way that he has loved us. This morning, like every Sunday morning, we share in a time of communion. And on the table, we have bread and we have juice. And it's a reminder that that God went to the furthest point to reveal his love to us. To the cross where his body was pierced and his blood was spilled. And that there on the cross, we come face to face with a love that's undeniable. It was impossible to look at the cross and reject the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, loved. We can reject People do reject that love, but we can't look at the cross and reject the fact that he loved. And my challenge to you this morning is to accept that love, and your life will never be the same. Hey, as you go to one of these four tables as we sing this song, I'm going to be back at the next steps table.